Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Most of the hour this morning is dedicated to discussions about the state's new two-year budget signed into law by Governor Mike DeWine earlier this month. Last week, we talked with Policy Matters Ohio about it. This week, we'll talk with their counterpart, somebody from the Buckeye Institute, for their take. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Angela Ann has even more about the budget with comments from Governor Mike DeWine about changes within the educational system and other aspects. And in about 45 minutes, I'll talk with somebody from the Ohio chapter of Americans for Prosperity. They're crossing the state this week to get input from Ohioans about the economy and other issues and how Washington is dealing with them. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, we've talked to him before. It's Ray Hederman, who's the executive director of the Economic Research Center and vice president of policy at the Buckeye Institute. How are you? I'm doing fine, Dave. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Buckeye Institute is. Yes, the Buckeye Institute is a nonpartisan research institution, a think tank, if you will, located in Columbus, Ohio. And what we do is we analyze policies in in Ohio and other states uh, aimed at making Ohio more prosperous, looking at ways the free market can help people live better lives. Is it fair to say that the Buckeye Institute leans right or conservative? Well, you know, Dave, uh, we don't take a position on politics, but, you know, our priors are that people make better decisions in the government. So, you know, we believe in limited government, lower taxes, freedom and personal responsibility. And, you know, we'll let uh, uh, listeners decide where that puts us on the political spectrum. Okay, and we were going to talk a little bit about the state budget that has just been signed into law by the governor to your budget. Uh, What are your overall thoughts on it? Yeah, well, you know, Ohio came into this budget cycle with a real opportunity to do big things. Uh, We ended the fiscal year, you know, which, as your listeners probably know, ends uh, uh, June 30th, with a record budget surplus. And when you have a record budget surplus, politicians can do two things. One is they can create a whole bunch of new spending programs, or two is they can make sure people can keep more of their money. And, you know, we're glad to say that this tax uh, uh, cut that was enshrined in the budget was large and helpful all Ohioans. But perhaps more importantly than that, Dave, is that Ohio created an education system uh, giving everybody access to vouchers so families can choose what's the best education options for their children. Uh, You know, we've seen a lot of uh, learning loss from the pandemic, but moving to an education voucher system really can make up the difference. And we've seen a lot of other states doing it, and we're glad to see Ohio join the revolution of giving families vouchers so they can have a choice on where their children are educated. I want to talk a little bit more about that school choice, uh, the voucher program, in a couple of minutes. First, let's start with that state income tax cut, because I've always found this really interesting, because I've done a number of interviews with you and others at Buckeye Institute, and also with the folks at Policy Matters Ohio, and the, the two groups could not be more different on the stance when it comes to the state income tax cut. Policy Matters Ohio says it's overwhelmingly for the for the wealthiest in Ohio, and benefits low-income Ohioans, not a bit, they because they already don't pay state income tax. They look at it as giving billions of dollars back that could be better used by the government to increase Ohio's job opportunities, et cetera. Yeah, 
You know, and I think that turns down to a difference in philosophy. And the simple matter is that, you know, when people are able to work and invest and you incentivize uh, people to do so, you see stronger economic results. Uh, you know, we, there's been a lot of comparisons about the economic philosophies of government-led spending programs leading to prosperity, and that doesn't work. You know, we can look at the fact that, you know, Europe, for example, is a perfect example of higher taxes uh, in government spending trying to produce prosperity. And as a result, we've seen that Europeans are falling farther and farther behind America in terms of people being better off. People here in America are able to buy nicer houses, more amenities to go with those houses. Because, and Dave, the key is people have incentive to work more, to be able to invest more, to create more jobs, to create new opportunities. And that's what this tax cut bill does. Uh, basically, it says we're reducing the number of tax rates. We're moving Ohio toward a flat tax. And so as a consequence, when people are paying income tax to the state of Ohio, next year they'll be able to keep more of their own money. They'll be able to sit there and say, how do I want to invest my money? Do I want to create a new business opportunity? Do I want to work more hours? And we think that's the, a better solution to prosperity as compared to government-directed uh, economic spending. Well, and one thing on that line of thinking is what you said earlier with the state's revenue continuing to increase and being strong. And if those tax cuts had not been made over the last 20 years, that would have opened the door perhaps for runaway spending when it wasn't necessary. Absolutely. You know, and that, and that has always been our big concern that, you know, when there's a huge surplus in uh, federal government or state capitals, you know, uh, unfortunately, there's a strong incentive to spend it. And, you know, research has found, academic research has found uh, uh, multiple studies that, you know, government spending does not pay for itself, you know, because politicians' priorities on uh, what they might spend a program on uh, tend to be things that politicians want to use to get elected, something that's in their interest. And so as a consequence, government dollars are not spent as efficiently as people being able to make decisions on how they're going to spend their tax dollars. So, you know, if you think about it, when Ohio had this record budget surplus, being able to make sure that Ohio families and businesses can keep more of their money uh, is a job well done. And that's an important change that both the House and Senate put into the budget process as Governor DeWine's initial proposal only had a very small tax cut, uh, mostly aimed at uh, fa uh, family spending. What would be the one uh, aspect of the budget that perhaps bothers you more than anything else? You know, on the tax uh, cut uh, side, Dave, you know, uh, basically pre before the budget, Ohio's tax brackets were what we called indexed to inflation. That meant as inflation goes up, the starting point of a tax bracket goes up as well. And that's important because we don't want Ohioans to pay more taxes simply due to inflation. And, you know, one of the proposals uh, that was put in is that they were going to uh, basically freeze the tax bracket so brackets would not go up every year with inflation and then have those automatically adjusted. Um, that did not make it into the budget process and has a consequence. Tax brackets remain the same uh, as they were in this previous years, which really puts future Ohioans, you know, in danger of simply paying more taxes due to uh, inflationary pressures uh, from runaway spending in Washington, D.C. So I'm hopeful that the General Assembly will come back and uh, make sure that the tax brackets are indexed uh, to protect taxpayers from inflation. Talking with Ray Hederman, he is the vice president of policy at the Buckeye Institute. School vouchers or school choice, this was interesting because 
The governor, in addition to uh, allowing the expansion of school choice or vouchers, also increased funding for public education. Yeah, you know, when you ha- when you have a record budget surplus, you know, uh, there's a lot of opportunities for politicians to do big things. And, you know, in this case, we've seen uh, a, a massive amount going to traditional public school funding, K through 12, as part of the governor's proposal. And we've also seen, you know, the creation of this new, new universal school voucher program uh, put in as well. So, you know, politicians were able to have their cake and eat it too uh, because the robust budget surplus. And I think it's important, you know, to, to, to again, to look at the fact that, you know, test scores have plummeted. And so what a universal voucher does, again, is it gives families a, a, a certain amount that they can use for tuition uh, if they choose to invest in a, a private school, for example. But we're also making good on promises, you know, to continue to fund a K-12 through programs in a traditional manner. Uh, and that saw a strong spending increase as well. So, you know, education was definitely one of the big winners of this recent budget cycle. Uh, the choices that parents have for their kids today when it comes to a non-traditional school, and there's been a lot of scrutiny over the years by some groups who say that, you know, some of these are for-profit schools that are not doing the job they should be doing, don't have the accountability they should. Has that been improved over the years, or what is the status on that? Well, you know, one of the things, I, I think, that, you know, one of the things that'll be uh, useful to see is that, you know, parents will have incentive, you know, to sit there and say, is my kid getting their education? Um, And I think a lot of parent involvement is going to be key. The other thing I think in this budget, uh, Dave, is that uh, the governor is going to have a lot more authority over the administration of education uh, because the state school board's powers were weakened, and instead those powers are transferred to the executive branch. And what this means is there's going to be a lot more accountability uh, for Governor DeWine to make sure that oversight of schools goes well, that these new programs, these new vouchers are administered well to make sure, you know, that families are easily able to have access to them, that people are able to spend it on the right schools, that school accreditation continues. So, you know, that is a change in the budget that doesn't have a lot of, you know, financial dollars attached to it, but by giving the executive branch stronger oversight on how school choice is executed, that could pay a lot of dividends for school reform. And that's something that, if you go back before that, was it Voinovich, maybe, who, uh, during his administration, the change was made so that some of the school board members were appointed by the governor instead of elected? Yes. You know, I mean, this is not a a brand new idea. And what we found, you know, is that the school board uh, had some accountability to the voters, but that was a little bit more diffuse. And so they were not as effective in executing some of these reform proposals that we've seen in the last couple of years. And, you know, so there's some frustration where the governor could appoint a few officials, but, you know, he didn't have a lot of control over how some of these programs were ministered. And so, you know, we saw the first proposals last year to kind of tighten this up. Uh, and now it was finally enshrined into law. So, you know, Governor DeWine's staff um, and Governor DeWine are going to have a lot more responsibility in making sure these new education reforms are administered effectively and then looking at the results where we uh, hopefully we'll see Ohio students uh, with higher test scores uh, and, and more opportunities as they uh, graduate from uh, high school. Is there any risk with that, though? I mean, if you get a governor who has some, some really, uh, you know, 
unusual, let's say, ideas about education. Does that give him too much power in the future if that happens? You know, that, you know that's, uh, that was a concern that some opponents have, you know, but it's always the question of, you know, you have the same risk by some of the school board uh, members, you know, being elected with different priorities than uh, perhaps what some people have. You know, but I think the key is, you know, you want a clear line of responsibility. So those that, you know, are administering the program uh, bear the responsibilities and voters know who's at fault. And in this case, you know, the governor is given a little bit more power, uh, but the consequence he's going to need to be able to answer to officials and voters to make sure that he's carrying out the education reforms correctly. One of the uh, areas of education reform where the governor seems to be trying to lead on is this third grade reading guarantee and, and trying to change the state's approach to teaching third graders how to read. Yes. You know, and so that's one of those things that uh, we're seeing a, 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 a lot of states looking at this right now. And the idea is if a third grader uh, uh, isn't able to read, you know, the, the, they will need to repeat third grade. And so the idea is that we need to guarantee literacy since that is such a foundational element of being able to be successful in life. And, you know, many other states have been looking at this, enacting some of these uh, reading guarantees, uh, and partially as a result of COVID. And, you know, we've seen uh, good results uh, because what it does is it aligns all the incentives of school teachers, parents want to look out for their kids, you know, local public school officials and the child themselves to make sure that, you know, reading remains of paramount importance. And so, you know, we've been strongly supportive uh, of that provision. It's interesting because the governor, I remember hearing a few weeks ago say uh, he wants to get back to some sort of a a phonics-based sort of uh, reading lesson, and he's pointing to, I believe it was Mississippi, uh, or one of those states down there. It was Mississippi, Dave, yes. You know, so one of the uh, less well-off states in the nation uh, that they had uh, uh, results coming in as a result of their third-grade reading guarantee. And people were very surprised to see the spike in literacy rates in the state of Mississippi. And so, you know, that was, that's been profiled in newspapers ranging from, you know, the New York Times uh, to other more conservative groups and publications, you know, basically saying, look, you know, there's something here and we need to make sure that a lot of students these days can read. And, you know, taking a look at the governor's phonics approach, you know, that is the best uh, proven way to have people be able to read English. And so I'm glad to see policymakers focus on the key issue of making sure that elementary school uh, children uh, do have the skills they need to succeed later in school and, of course, in their careers. And I think, you know, one of the things that the governor's budget has done is continue to prioritize, you know, the well-being of children, Uh, you know, not just with some of the education things that we've talked about, you know, and the vouchers. Uh, You know, they also uh, looked at uh, some controls on social media, for example, uh, that you'd want, uh, uh, you know, some parental consent. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, focus on making sure that Ohio's uh, children can get a good education and, you know, are protected uh, as well as they can be uh, through uh, measures in this budget. Talking with Ray Hederman, he's the vice president of policy at the Buckeye Institute. I think in the past, Buckeye Institute has taken a stand against the Medicaid expansion that happened a few years ago. What is the status on that with the new budget? Yeah, well, you know, Medicaid expansion, you know, continues. Um, and right now, you know, the Medicaid uh, enrollment continues to remain very high as a result of a lot of people entering the Medicaid program uh, during the COVID period. 
the federal government had attached rules so the state could not disenroll uh, anybody from Medicaid until the spring. So, you know, three over three years after the pandemic started, uh, if you had joined the Medicaid program, you've remained on the Medicaid program, even if you're uh, ineligible. So, you know, one of the things that we're going to be looking at is, you know, making sure that Ohio can review the eligibility of Medicaid enrollees and those that, you know, have income exceeding the Medicaid threshold, you know, are properly removed from the program, transition to other types of insurance, uh, because we need to make sure that Medicaid spending goes to people who need Medicaid benefits as compared to those that are working and should have insurance uh, through their place of work or other means. Is that the big concern with Buckeye Institute about Medicaid expansion is that there may be people that that it becomes kind of enabling people that take it that maybe wouldn't necessarily need to be on it? You know, that's one of our concerns, Dave. You know, the other concern is simply that, you know, when you expand Medicaid, right, you're placing a disincentive on people to continue to work, to get raises. Um, and that's why, you know, work requirements is a good idea. Because the way the Medicaid program works is, you know, it's a cliff that if you make too much money, you're no longer eligible for Medicaid. And so as a consequence, economists, including the Congressional Budget Office in Washington, D.C., said, look, you know, Medicaid expansion is going to reduce the number of workers and reduce work hours in the country because you could have somebody saying, if I take this raise, if I pick up this extra shift, or if I move to this better job, then all of a sudden my income becomes such that I lose all these Medicaid benefits. And so as a consequence, I'm worse off by working more or getting a raise. And that remains one of our big concerns. Uh, you know, we published a report a few years ago that said, look, you know, your work requirements is a good tool because it could overcome that trap and it can raise lifetime earnings for you know a young person just starting off the work career by hundreds of thousands of dollars because we know that the longer you're in the workforce the more skills you get the more money you get you know as you get raises that accumulates over your lifetime and the problem with Medicaid expansion is it's a big disincentive for people to take that next step in their career. Just a couple of minutes to go with Ray Hederman. He's with the Buckeye Institute. The day that we record this, the new inflation number came out at 3% nationally. And a year ago, we were talking about, what was it, 9%, 9%? So what is your take on how the economy is hanging in there, even as for the last year, people have been talking about a recession around the corner? Well, you know, the Ohio labor market, you know, like our budget surplus, is in very good shape. We've been setting records and having the lowest unemployment rate in history. Uh, we know that job openings are outstripping uh, uh, the unemployed workers. So what it means is if you're in the labor market, it is a very good time for workers. People are able to negotiate and get better raises. Workers are, uh, are in great demand, particularly those with skills. Um, my concern, I think, you know, with the inflation numbers is, you, you know, what we're seeing is uh, inflation at 3% is definitely a lot better than inflation at 9%, you know, but that's well above the number that we've been used to. And so the question is, you know, will we start seeing inflation, you know, falling back to the 2%, you know, below 2% number that it's been the last 20 years? 
or are we going to be faced with the problem of permanently higher interest rates for the foreseeable future, around three or four percent? And that will have a big impact on you know not just workers uh, trying to uh, get better wages, but obviously also you know uh, for state policymakers and how they're going to spend, how they're going to adjust the state's budget uh, to account for an inflation that's been higher than it has been in the last few decades. Has the pandemic and and the uh, you know how we've adjusted since it has that messed up all the studies that can be done over the last you know three four years to determine some of the policies that worked and didn't work? No, you know I think uh, the, the you know the pandemic really gave an opportunity to take a look and say you know w- what really matters? Why are we having some of these rules? Uh, so, for example, you know, regulations that said uh, you can't, uh, you, you know, you must see a doctor in person before you use uh, telehealth services, for example. You know, those type of regulations have fallen by the wayside because people realized, you know, that they were forced to, to utilize more technology and saying, look, this doesn't make sense anymore in the world we live in. So, you know, the pandemic gave us an opportunity to uh, change a lot of laws uh, to help make sure, that, you know, that nurses could see patients more easily. Uh, for example, uh, making sure that small businesses and restaurants could uh, operate with fewer restrictions. So that's been good. You know, um, the problem is, is we've seen some lingering impacts of the pandemic, you know, particularly dealing with uh, uh, school children, uh, people that, you know, um, were, did not see schools open nearly as much uh, in the past. And so as a result, you're seeing law, uh, lower test scores, trying to figure out how to adjust that. We're also seeing a down towns, uh, not seeing, you know, the number of workers. As a, many workers have permanently moved to working at least part-time from home. So there's going to be a lot of policy adjustments that will continue uh, through the pandemic uh, because we're quite simply in a, in a different world where, you know, employers, you know, school children feel very confident, you know, in letting people use Zoom, uh, you know, letting people use remote work from home, telemedicine, those type of policies. It is amazing, you know, the impact. I think sometimes we don't think about it in these terms, but if you're in sixth grade or younger, that pandemic has impacted greatly anywhere from a third to maybe two-thirds or more of your entire life in the education system. That's exactly right, and that's why, you know, we're so uh, supportive of the policies contained in this budget where, you know, parents uh, know their children best, and so they can figure out what type of learning environment is best for their children because, unfortunately, a lot of these young children, and, you know, I have a son who's going to be a senior in high school, and he missed his, you know, eighth grade graduation. You know, they missed a lot of their school trips, missed out a lot of opportunities from the pandemic, you know, and hopefully this budget will address the learning loss. But, you know, just is important. You know, there's a lot of socialization loss uh, that's impacted a lot of teenagers. And so taking a look, and and teenagers and obviously uh, younger uh, children as well. So, you know, taking a look at, you know, what type of measures, uh, starting with the family that can help, you know, children recover uh, some of that childhood identity where they're able to, you know, to work, play together, um, and enjoy that bonding time and uh, replace uh, some of the pains of isolation from the quarantine. Ray Hederman, he's the executive director of the Economic Research Center and VP of Policy at the Buckeye Institute. Anything else you'd like to add, Ray? 
No, you know, I think, you know, Dave, just one of the other interesting things about this budget is, you know, we've talked a lot about K-12 through reform, but we're seeing a lot of attention and policymakers start to look at higher education. Uh, so there was a line item money appropriated to create, you know, centers for civics and trust uh, in several higher ed uh, education, uh, uh, such as, you know, Ohio State. And so these are lawmakers saying we're concerned about, you know, the uh, liberal bias perceived in universities. So this is an alternative viewpoint to try to say, hey, we're going to create these centers to hopefully uh, create some new uh, talking points, uh, a, a new counterbalance, if you will, as reform to higher education. So, you know, pay, pay attention to some of these higher education reform ideas, uh, because I think, you know, this is just uh, the beginning, and you're going to see Ohio and a lot of other states looking at, you know, can we make sure that universities are offering uh, the value for the high tuition payments that students Seems like they're going to be a bit under the gun because, you know, you hear more and more these days about people saying just how how valuable is, how necessary is a four-year degree for a lot of the jobs that are out there. Yeah, you know, and that's something that we have talked a lot about, you know, the future of work and that, you know, you're sitting there and you're saying uh, in-demand jobs, a lot of these professions, uh, you know, you're looking at a community college degree, you know, a welder, plumber, uh, a, a, a manufacturer, advanced manufacturer, you know, these are jobs that are very much in demand and, you know, it's a different skill set than some of the four-year colleges. So, you know, we're glad to see uh, you know, the Dwight administration, particularly Lieutenant Governor Husted, you know, folks focus on upskilling um, and providing real value for some of these uh, Ohioans who a four-year college is not the path that they want. And, you know, making sure that we can teach uh, young Ohioans skills that are in demand for the workplace uh, is going to be the key for the next few decades. And what we're seeing right now is a lot of these skills, you know, no longer require a four-year college degree. And, you know, we've seen that employers are saying we want to test for skills and not just a paper degree. You know, for example, Google said we're going to hire programmers based on what they can do. Uh, They don't need to be a college graduate. You know, we've seen a lot of other governors in other states saying uh, we're going to eliminate uh, college degree requirements for a lot of government positions that don't need them. So, you know, it's important, I think, you know, that uh, the the wine administration policymakers continue to look at alternatives to four-year colleges because they still have a lot of value, you know, but there's more than one pathway to success uh, that involves being a four-year college degree graduate. Interesting stuff. Uh, Ray Hederman again with the Buckeye Institute. Ray, if folks want to see your research online and uh, policy positions and all that, how do they find it? Yeah, you should go to BuckeyeInstitute.org. It has all our information on the budget and testimonies, editorials, uh, our our research papers. Uh, So we invite people to come check us out. You know, we are a think tank that focuses on fiscal policy, health care, and, of course, you know, legal issues as well. Always good to talk to you, Ray. Thanks so much for your time today. Very much appreciated, Dave. Appreciate the opportunity. When kids need medical care, they will often face stressful and life-changing experiences. They miss out on the things that make being a kid fun. Starlight Children's Foundation has delivered happiness to 17 million seriously ill kids and their families at more than 800 children's hospitals and healthcare facilities. Our programs entertain and inspire hospitalized kids. Learn more at starlight.org. That's starlight.org. Hey, this is Grace Gostet. 
I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Now on Face the State and Budget, now signed by the governor. We'll break down where that money is going and the items pulled from the budget. The new Social Media Parental Notification Act. It could give more power to parents when it comes to their child's social media. Our one-on-one with Ohio's lieutenant governor. And more than 700,000 signatures dropped at the state's doorstep. What is next to put abortion access on the November ballot? Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Angela Ann from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Well, very early in the morning on uh, July 4th, (laughs) I signed into law the state uh, budget. It's a budget that, like our first two budgets, uh, is really an investment in the people of the state of Ohio. We begin Face the State this Sunday morning with a look at the budget plan. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine signed it, but only after making a long list of vetoed items. Thanks for joining us for Face the State. I'm Angela Ann. Tracy is off this morning. Let's talk about some of those line items the governor nixed from that two-year budget. Here are some of the highlights of the 44 items pulled out. The first veto is focused on who has the power to ban the sale of flavored tobacco products. Another veto cut out a provision allowing students to decline vaccines required for college enrollment. And finally, the future of sales tax holidays in Ohio. But top of mind when it comes to investment was education and the future of our growing technology industry. Ohio businesses need skilled employees and they need them now. At our career tech centers, students are getting the skills and certifications needed to quickly fill these jobs. One of the things that Lieutenant Governor and I and and Fran found, though, as we travel around the state, um, more and more kids going into career tech, but we found waiting lists where young people were not being, were being literally turned away. Uh, And sometimes when they got into the school, they could get into the school, but then they couldn't get the courses they wanted or the area that they wanted to study. This budget provides resources to expand career tech programs and to launch new ones, including a one-time infusion of $200 million to build new facilities and $100 million to purchase the needed equipment. So let's now talk about some of those vetoes the governor uh, took out. One of them was a second attempt by the GOP-led legislature to prevent local communities from being banning the sale of flavored tobacco products, earning him high praise from health advocates. The legislature's proposal would have left that solely up to the state. Yeah, I, I would love for the legislature to give me uh, a bill on my desk that, uh, in regard to tobacco a, as well as vaping, uh, said that in Ohio uh, we're not going to sell a product that's menthol and we're not going to sell a product uh, that is any, any other flavor. I'll, I'll, I will sign that. 
Again, look, this is consistent with throughout my career. Uh, back in the United States Senate, I played a major role in, in, in trying to, uh, you know, deal with the uh, the aftermath of addiction from from tobacco, um, and I was not always successful there. Uh, sometimes we were, but not certainly not always. Uh, but look, when when the issue first came up in regard to are we going to, if you remember in my previous veto, I basically said, look, if we can come up with a statewide ban uh, on, on flavors, you know, that is the uniformity I would, I would like to see. So, you know, again, that, if we can do that and do that with, with menthol, uh, that, would be, that would be great. Another veto included a provision allowing a student to decline vaccines required for enrollment or residence in university dorms. I think those of you who have followed, followed uh, me through the, through the pandemic would not be surprised by that, by that, by that, that veto. Uh, you know, to, to take an example, uh, what that basically was saying, that a university that has their housing uh, and maybe two or three or how many uh, students to, to a room, uh, you know, couldn't have any kind of requirement that, that their experts were advising them was very important. Uh, so to, to tie their hands and to subject other students to that uh, seems to me to make absolutely no sense. But again, it's consistent with where I've been throughout the pandemic and the aftermath of it. DeWine also vetoed a proposed two-week sales tax holiday in 2024. Another piece of the budget includes an overhaul of the Department of Education. It moves the Ohio Department of Education under the governor's office and limits some powers of the state board. Critics call it a power grab. Here's what the governor had to say. After watching this for four years, it became clear to me that we could better serve children uh, out of one department and one member of the cabinet who every day got up and that's all she was thinking about. The governor says a transition team is already in place to make that transfer happen smoothly. Governor DeWine also made sure mental health care was a focus of his budget. Reporter Lindsay Buckingham is breaking down those investments. Organizations like Adams say this new funding for mental health services is a game changer for those struggling. In addition to raising awareness, it's also shining a spotlight on the need for mental health and addiction services. Some key items in the law include increasing reimbursements for providers, increasing mental health access for both kids and adults, and continued support for prevention, crisis, and recovery services. So this budget has a strong investment for services for children children and youth. It has a dedicated funding source for the operations of 988, you know, the crisis line. And it also begins to address the low Medicaid behavioral health reimbursement rates, which will actually allow for a 10% increase in the rates being paid to our providers for the services that they provide. For our state investing uh, the amount of funds that it is in, in mental health, it, it's really showing um, it's really showing support for that, right? So it's showing it to our entire country. And for more on the state budget and what it looks like, you can look for our story with our free 10TV News app. You'll find that at 10TV.com. 
And also in state government, the abortion issue back in the spotlight one year after the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. An abortion rights group dropped off what will likely be enough signatures to get the issue up for a vote this fall. As 10TV's Kiana Deitch shows us, nearly 700,000 Ohioans are supporting this move. Boxes from each of Ohio's 88 counties. Those boxes are filled with hope and love and dreams of freedom, of bodily autonomy. Filled with signatures in favor of placing an amendment on the November ballot to make abortion a constitutional right. As a woman, this issue is critical to my life. It's critical to my family's life. Lauren Blauveld is chair of Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom. They had to collect 413,000 signatures, which is 10% of the total votes cast in the last governor's race. The group says it dropped off more than 700,000. Michael Ganadakis is president of Ohio Right to Life. After spending millions of dollars, they couldn't even turn in 800,000 or a million, which they claimed they were going to do. So underwhelming at best for them today. He says the proposed amendment would remove current pro-life laws, including parental consent. A 14, 15-year-old girl could, could sidestep their parents. They could have an angry boyfriend. They could be a victim of human trafficking. And mom and dad would never know and force them to have an abortion. Other anti-abortion rights groups say people are going to vote pro-life in November. These types of decisions should be left to the legislature, as they have been for the last several decades. And we've always arrived at common sense measures to protect children and women. Those who support abortion hope these boxes will help women make their own decisions. Today, we say never again, not under our watch, not for us, not for our children, not for our families, not for our patients. Kiana Deitches, 10 TV News. Recreational marijuana could also be on the ballot. The Coalition to Regulate Marijuana, like alcohol, submitted 222,000 signatures for a new proposal. The law would allow adults over 21 to buy, possess, and grow cannabis. The Ohio Department of Commerce would also be authorized to impose a 10% tax on marijuana sales. Secretary of State Frank LaRose will have to verify the signatures before the initiative goes to voters. There is, however, another election coming to Ohio voters in less than a month. The August 8th special election will decide whether to change the threshold for changing the state's constitution. Absentee and early in-person voting begin Tuesday, July 11th. And if you want to mail in your absentee ballot, that must be postponed marked by August 7th. The following day, August 8th, that's when polls open for the special election, starting at 6.30 in the morning until 7.30 at night. And still ahead here on Face the State, a man accused of stalking and harassing a Colorado woman ignites a debate over free speech. Coming up, we verify if his messages are protected by the First Amendment. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Each year, Ohioans are injured and killed in train car accidents that could have been avoided with properly functioning gates and flashing lights. 
Facts show that gates and lights together prevent more train car accidents than stop signs or crossbucks alone. How can you help? Approach all crossings with caution and report bad railroad crossings at angelsontrack.org. That's angelsontrack.org. Because bad crossings kill good drivers. Sponsored by Angels on Track, aired by OAB and this station. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Angela Ann, courtesy of 10TV. Thanks for staying with us here on Face the State. I'm Angela Ann. The Supreme Court recently overturned a conviction of a man accused of stalking and harassing a woman in Colorado. Verifies Ariane Detail answers the question, if stalking is protected under the First Amendment. From 2014 to 2016, Billy Counterman sent hundreds of Facebook messages to a local Colorado musician. Messages that the musician said made her fear for her safety. In 2017, Counterman was found guilty on charges of stalking and harassment and sentenced to more than four years in prison. Counterman appealed the verdict, saying his First Amendment right to free speech was violated because he didn't know that the messages were threatening. In June, the Supreme Court agreed and reversed Counterman's conviction. The ruling immediately prompted people on social media to ask if the court's ruling means stalking is now protected under the First Amendment. So let's verify. Our sources are the Supreme Court ruling on Counterman v. Colorado, the Free Speech Center at Middle Tennessee State University, and Clay Calvert, professor emeritus of law at the University of Florida. The First Amendment protects an individual's right to free speech, but it doesn't protect something called a true threat. And that is exactly what this Supreme Court case focuses on. According to the Free Speech Center, a true threat is a statement that is meant to frighten or intimidate someone into believing that they will be seriously harmed. Counterman argued that he didn't know what he was saying was threatening, so it shouldn't be considered a true threat. Instead, it should be considered protected speech. And the court agreed. Under the Supreme Court's new ruling, a prosecutor has to prove to a jury that at least one of the following is true about the person accused of stalking or harassing somebody and the messages they sent. The person intended to make the threat, the person knew the statements could be perceived as threatening, or the statement could be perceived as threatening by a reasonable person. According to University of Florida law professor Clay Calvert, while this ruling doesn't stop prosecutions of stalking cases, it could cause a domino effect because any defendant in a case involving harmful or threatening speech could claim they didn't know their statements were threatening or being perceived as threatening. So we can verify, no, the Supreme Court did not rule stalking is protected under the First Amendment. With your verify, I'm Ariane Till. Ariane, thank you. If you have something you would want us to verify, just email verify at 10tv.com. Coming up next. Almost 60% of our children are not ready for kindergarten. That's not a good number, but the tool you can use to get kids ready to learn for under $10. When kids need medical care, they will often face stressful and life-changing experiences. They miss out on the things that make being a kid fun. Starlight Children's Foundation has delivered happiness to 17 million seriously ill kids and their families at more than 800 children's hospitals and healthcare facilities. Our programs entertain and inspire hospitalized kids. Learn more at starlight.org. That's starlight.org. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities. He's been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. 
I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. And my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash our stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. When severe weather strikes, seconds count. Depend on the Doppler 10 weather team to keep you one step ahead. With the advanced warning you need. When things go from messy to dangerous. Tracking each threat down to the places you live. We're Grove City 408. Minute by minute on your TV and on your phone. With advanced warning when you need it most. So when skies turn dark. Here comes that line. Depend on the Doppler 10 weather team and Central Ohio's weather leader, 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Angela Ann, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. The countdown is on for the next kindergarten readiness assessment. Next month, Ohio children under the age of five will be measured to see if they're ready to go to class. 10TV's Clay Gordon spoke to one organization helping to prepare the future class of 2037. School is out, but one organization does not stop during the summer slide. Uh, school districts do that push. They're pretty hard. They, they're getting the word out. There's a ton of um, kindergarten uh, preparation work that's happening right now where they're getting kids signed up for kindergarten. And students have their work cut out this year. Almost 60% of our children are not ready for kindergarten, as judged by the kindergarten readiness assessment. And the problem is even worse when you look at children of color, where black children, at 73% of them are not ready for kindergarten, and 82% of Latino kids in the county are not ready. Future Ready Columbus helps students learn through educational wellness resources in the community, but also with these at-home toolkits. The beauty of it is in its simplicity. Focused on family engagement. We are excited about this because these toolkits have gone to serve kids all over the county, and because of their low cost, we've been able to serve a ton of kids throughout the regions, thousands and thousands of kids at this point. At a cost of $7, Future Ready Columbus helps our youngest future students. And as a recipient of the 10TV and Tegna Foundation grant, we're hoping they could reach even more. On behalf of 10TV and the Tegna Foundation, we want to present you this check for $5,000. Uh, we are hoping this goes a very long way in our community and, and helping out our children. So congratulations. Thank you very much. You I so appreciate it. Thanks to 10TV and the folks at Tegna. We greatly appreciate it. And Angela Pace, I know, who is a very big part of making this happen for us. So thank you all very much. We're excited about this opportunity, and the children and families of uh, Columbus will thank you very much for this. So we appreciate it. Congratulations. Thank you. That was Clay Gordon reporting. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's Face the State. Thank you all for watching. We'll see you again next Sunday. And remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the states. Have a good day. That's again Angela Ann, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Right now, our country feels divided, but there's a place where people are coming together. I got to tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation, and it feels good. 
Wow, your story is so、uh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> When people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com/slash/one-small-step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com/one-small-step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. Talk to your doctor about creating a plan that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Donovan O'Neill, who is the director of the Ohio chapter of Americans for Prosperity. How are you? I'm doing good, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what Americans for Prosperity is. Well, we're one of the nation's largest grassroots organizations, working in all 50 states to advance、uh, the same principles that our nation was founded on: freedom and liberty. And we've been working here in Ohio for over a decade.、Uh, Advancing grassroots solutions to some of the country's and our state's biggest challenges,、uh, and、uh, excited to be on the show to talk a little bit about what we got coming up this summer. So, on the political spectrum, then you lean right. Is that correct? Yeah, I would describe us as a, as a little more libertarian leaning. Right, we want to kind of get government out of the way. We believe there's a proper role for it. Right, but、uh, I like paved roads, and I like knowing that law enforcement are going to show up when there's an emergency. But otherwise, we got to get back to empowering entrepreneurs and individuals.、Uh, that again, the same principles that made this country great、uh, in its founding. Okay, and、uh, so today is Sunday, the sixteenth, and this coming week you've got a lot of stuff going on around Ohio. Well, we do.、Uh, each summer, we like to do it. We like to do tours. We like to get out there, and we like to go big and bold, and we like to make sure that we're we're letting folks know, even in this summer fun、uh, time, that、uh, there are challenges facing our country, and we provide a megaphone. For the voices of the people who are who are frustrated about the direction that this country's heading, and so we'll be kicking off、uh, two waves starting July 17th, and we'll be back again August 14th with our Prosperity as Possible tour. So we'll be bringing an RV across the state, crisscrossing the Buckeye State,、uh, elevating voices of Ohioans to hear their thoughts and concerns about the direction of this country, and ultimately answer the question: Is prosperity possible in the United States today? So over the next few days, you're going to be in Cleveland, Akron, Youngstown, Zanesville, Columbus, Cincinnati, Dayton, Lima, and Toledo. So、uh, this RV, where do you set up, and what do people see, and how do they interact with it? Well, we'll you know, best way to follow us honestly is on our social media because with these kinds of things, we try to just pop up,、uh, show up. Although we've got a few events planned just to give you a taste of them. We plan to be in Cleveland,、uh, where we're going to rally somewhere downtown near Public Square、uh, with the RV. You'll see us there. We'll be handing out some swag and, and asking folks again. You know,、uh, is Bidenomics、uh, working for you? It's something that the president's touting as a positive for our country.、Um, we're curious if folks feel that same way.、Um, but then from there,、uh, we'll also be going down to、uh, to Belmont County, Ohio, where we'll be attending an axe throwing event. Uh, talking about、uh, taxes and regulations and how we need to be cutting red tape and what it's doing to our country,、uh, crossing over to into Columbus and sitting down at a, at a, a commercial electrician's firm, talking about how red tape and regulation, both on the state and federal level, are are negatively impacting、uh, their business and the, the customers that they、uh, that they serve. 
and then all the way up to Lake Erie, where we've got a Portland Fish Company. They're going to be, uh, they're a three-generation family-owned business, uh, pulling fish out of Lake Erie and serving it up to folks uh, there in Port Clinton. And we'll be there talking about, again, what, what Bidenomics and, uh, and the overall direction the economy has been doing to their, their business three generations then. So this is interesting because, you know, the, the bread and butter issues for Ohioans and people across the country generally, I think, are, are often the same. You know, there are things like, uh, you know, the cost of education and inflation and, you know, all these economic issues. And when you're talking to somebody in Cleveland or in Belmont County, if they have somewhat similar concerns and yet maybe approach them from wildly different angles, how, how does that work? What, what is your reaction from folks and, you know, how do they react to you? Well, yeah, we, we did a similar tour last summer. It was our True Cost of Washington tour where we went around the state and we rolled back the price of gas to what it was the day Joe Biden took office. And, and it's interesting. The, 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 the parts of Ohio uh, are different, and the, the challenges that they face have some various uh, flavors or color to them. But largely they're the same thing uh, on that tour, and I think we're going to see the same thing in this tour, that Washington spending's out of control. Inflation is, is on the rise. Uh, Domestic energy production is is at a low, and we need to improve it. And uh, if you're not if you're if you're not working, and you talk to employers, a lot of these places we're going to go to employers, uh, they're finding it's harder and harder to get uh, get jobs filled. Um, we're getting better, but it's not fast enough. And so I think the things we see from Cleveland to Belmont County, over to Butler County, up to Toledo and Lake Erie, in the four corners of Ohio, uh, it is uh, it's a similar story, but with various local flavors and color. And that's what makes this job exciting. And our ability to put a megaphone to those folks' voices, where they're otherwise not being heard, uh, gives us a, a good purpose in what we do. What is your uh, input on what's going on with the economy? Because, you know, for a year now or, or longer, people have been expecting a recession. You know, some people might say we're in a recession now, but when you've got very high inflation that is coming down, but still very high, and also record low unemployment, how, how do those two mesh? Well, I think that's what's interesting about our Prosperity is Possible Tour and our, the, when what we do as an organization, right, and that what... What the economists will tell you or what, you know, what the White House will put out through their, through their Bidenomics tour that they're, they're embarking on this summer is wildly different, I think, than what I see and I, when I talk to my neighbors than what I see when I'm out at events that we do. And that's part of why we're going out to have these, to, to, to collect these stories and try to understand and elevate for people uh, so we can send that message back to Washington that things aren't as rosy and, and, and perfect as they may seem. And the more and more that we see government uh, intervene in the marketplace, more and more we see the, the green crony capitalism uh, driving up the cost of domestic energy production and government spending grow and grow and grow every year, uh, the less and less economic opportunity and prosperity is out there. And so I think what we're going to find as we go out on this tour and we talk to folks is what we found anecdotes over the last few months of, of holding meetings and meeting with people at their doors is uh, things aren't as rosy and perfect as they're being presented by the White House and by some, uh, some, some folks who leave this country. And we really need to get back to the basics and, uh, and advance some, some core principles of liberty and freedom to, to get us where we're going to, where we need to be. Talking with Donovan O'Neill, he is the state director in Ohio for the Ohio chapter of Americans for Prosperity. I did want to ask you, too, about the state budget. It has uh, been passed uh, mostly along partisan lines, as, as is usually the case. But w- what is your take on Ohio's new budget? Yeah, well, in general, we're pretty thrilled with where the state budget landed. I mean, the first thing, just like we've got a spending problem in Washington, D.C., uh, we've got a, a spending problem in Columbus. And this budget grows significantly, I think, to the tune of some $5 billion 
just in state general revenue spending. And that, by the way, um, is under Republican conservative leadership. Um, but uh, what they did do well, and we want to encourage more of, is tax cuts. Um, some of the largest tax cuts we've seen, I think, total at about $3 billion in tax cuts, bringing Ohio's income tax rate from four brackets and a top marginal rate of 3.99% down to just two brackets and a top rate of 3.5%. Uh, so that's great for wage earners, right? Uh, they do something for, for entrepreneurs and business owners by exempting uh, the first $6 million of gross receipts off of what's called the commercial activities tax, or the CAT. The CAT is an incredibly um, economically harmful tax, and we're happy to see about 90% of Ohio businesses, when this is fully implemented over the next two years, will be exempt from paying that tax. That's great for business. It sends a message that if you want to start your business in Ohio, uh, do it, and it's gonna have, you're going to have a low uh, barrier to entry for that. Uh, but then it also brings about a sales tax. So we've got consumers, we've got businesses, and now they're working. I'm sorry, we've got wage earners, businesses, and now we've got consumers. There's the sales tax uh, cut that they're also bringing into place by taking a portion of the surplus. And rather than finding new ways to spend it in Columbus, they're going to be redistributing that back out to Ohioans through an extended sales tax holiday. So from tax cuts to school choice, where we have universal school choice, and I'm sure many of your listeners have heard about sweeping the nation this year, uh, despite the spending, there are some big, bold, transformative reforms that the, the General Assembly put into place and Governor DeWine signed into law, and we're generally pretty happy about that. But we'll keep the, we'll keep the fight up for fiscal stewardship uh, for the years to come. From some of the more conservative members of the state house and conservative uh, Republicans in Ohio, I think there's always been a, le- a level of frustration from them when it comes to Governor Mike DeWine, even from before when he was in the Senate. But does that continue? Is there a level of frustration with his kind of philosophy on politics? Well, you know, we'll give credit to, to Governor DeWine. He set the tone for school choice in Ohio with his state of the state, where he declared that uh, he wanted to see an expansion of our Ed Choice voucher. It's a proven program that empowers parents with their students' dollars to take them to a school that best meets that student's needs. Governor DeWine started that, uh, started that debate beginning of this year with the State of the State Address. But I think what's also, what also falls at then, right, is executive does what executive's going to do and find more and more ways to spend the money. And it's not just a problem that exists at the executive level. In fact, the Ohio House uh, increased their spending from what the executive asked for uh, by, I think, about uh, $500 uh, million. So the executive said, we need this much to run the state of Ohio. Ohio Republicans, and House Republicans and Democrats who came together in a bipartisan fashion to have their own version of the budget to send over to the Senate was about $500 million more. Really, the only um, hero in this equation is uh, coming out of the Senate, where under Senate President Hoffman, Finance Chairman Dolan, they actually came in about a million dollars less than, I'm sorry, billion, a billion dollars less than what the executive actually asked for and went further on tax cuts and education. But bottom line is, we're still spending more than we were before, and we need to get, we need conservatives in Columbus to get real about this kind of stuff and uh, start uh, start uh, being a little more fiscally steward, a better fiscal steward with uh, public tax dollars here in the state of Ohio. A think tank that is kind of your uh, uh, the opposite of where you stand on a lot of this stuff, uh, Policy Matters Ohio. We talked with them last week, and they have long been against these state income tax cuts, saying that, first of all, people who make under $26,000 who don't pay state income tax, it does nothing for them, yet drains the state of a billion dollars uh, from its coffers with almost all of that money going to the wealthiest Ohioans, which they say is not in the best interest of Ohioans. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but I think the reality is Policy Matters Ohio believes that, that government needs to play an outsized role in uh, in people's lives. It's similar to what uh, uh, President Biden and Bidenomics is doing to us on a national level across all 50 states. But the, 
reality is, is when Ohioans have cut taxes, we've cut taxes every two years for the last decade, we've seen greater economic growth. We've seen more spending because the money's coming in. It's not going, it's not as much, it's not going back to the people as fast enough. And so what we find is when we cut taxes, we invite more people to the state, we invite more investment into the state, and where we're getting to is closer to where you have a, have a healthy balance of, of money coming in and money going out, and uh, credit to the, to the Ohio General Assembly and the governor for what they ultimately signed a few weeks ago of getting us down to two income tax brackets, because that's more money ultimately in the hands of, of hardworking Ohioans who deserve it. Hopefully someday we get to a place where we're at a flat tax and then eventually a zero income tax. Um, but uh, we're probably still a few years out from that. You mentioned uh, an expanded state sales tax holiday. Is that, that would be one item that would have to be the line item veto overridden by the Republican legislature. Is that right? Well, it was a little bit of a technicality from our understanding and talking with folks uh, around Columbus about this. What they did, what they determined was that um, they didn't want to have for this first sales tax holiday a defined window that the General Assembly had included in the budget they sent over the governor. Rather, they wanted to be able to, my understanding is they wanted to be able to take a look at, to have the tax commissioner and the governor take a look at where revenues are at, where surpluses are at, and then set the window of that extended sales tax holiday based on uh, projections of where they might be, where, where they might land. But they still allocated $750 million uh, for this yet-to-be-determined sales tax holiday window that I'm sure will be well-marketed uh, when, it's, uh, when it's implemented and decided upon. Talking with Donovan O'Neill, he is the director of the Ohio Chapter of Americans for Prosperity. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, we'd love to have folks come out and visit us on our Prosperity is Possible tour. Visit us on social media or visit prosperityispossible.com to learn more about, uh, about our tour across the country. And visit us at a stop soon. Excellent. Uh, Donovan, thanks so much for your time and good luck. Hey, appreciate being on. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.